You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this episode of What We've Learned from NKS, Stephen is counting down to the 20th anniversary of a new kind of science with a chapter retrospective. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to uh, part two of my effort to go through my decade-long uh, book, A New Kind of Science. New Kind of Science will have been out for 20 years in May of this year, and we've been doing a chapter a week. We are now on chapter two, talking about what was in NKS. Um, the, uh, uh, it's worth realizing the book took a decade to write. There are 12 chapters in the book, so I'm kind of trying to summarize in an hour or so what in many cases took a year or more to produce. Now, actually, chapter two is kind of one of my favorite chapters, perhaps maybe even my very favorite chapter. And uh, just to give you a sense of, of uh, what's, what's there, that's the, uh, that's the collection of, of chapters. Chapter two is called The Crucial Experiment. And it is uh, the story of the experiment that launched a new kind of science and that has basically launched the whole tower of science that I've been building since then that's led in recent times to our physics project and other kinds of things. What I'll talk about today is uh, the crucial experiment that launched all those kinds of things. It's my all-time favorite science discovery, and uh, um, it's, um, it's something, uh, I think, significant in, um, uh, for many purposes. Okay, so let's talk about that um, crucial experiment. So the, the main topic here is how do simple programs behave? And the, the really the, the, um, the kind of the, the, the sort of um, the concept here is to ask the question, uh, we, we talked maybe last time about the idea of um, what, how should one make models of things in science? And the notion that well, mathematical equations have been used for a long time to do that. But if we want to generalize how we make models of things, we need to be able to operate with more general kinds of rules. And one of the key sources of those kinds of rules, I think the, the, the sort of the next step from mathematical equations, 300 years later, so to speak, is the idea of using programs as the source of our models. So maybe I'll just uh, read you what I, what I wrote at the beginning of this um, uh, this chapter, and then we'll talk about um, some of the some of the actual experiments and pictures and so on that came out. So the the um, this section is called "How do simple programs behave?" New directions in science have typically been initiated by certain central observations or experiments, and for the kind of science that I describe in this book, these concern the behavior of simple programs. In our everyday experience with computers, the programs that we encounter are normally set up to perform very definite tasks. But the key idea that I had nearly 20 years ago when I wrote that, which is now nearly 40 years ago, um, and that eventually led to the whole new kind of science in this book, was to ask what happens if one instead looks at simple, arbitrarily chosen programs created without any specific task in mind. How do such programs typically behave? Mathematical methods that we've in the past have in the past dominated theoretical science don't help much with such a question. But with a computer, it's straightforward to start doing experiments to investigate it. For all one need do is set up a sequence of possible simple programs and then run them and see how they behave. Any program can at some level be thought of as consisting of a set of rules that specify what it should do at each step. 
There are many possible ways to set up these rules, and indeed we'll study quite a few of them in the course of the book. But for now, I'll consider a particular class of examples called cellular automata that were the very first kinds of simple programs that I investigated in the early 1980s. So let's talk about uh, how cellular automata work. So let me um, back here. So in um, uh, one of the things that's really important about cellular automata is that their behavior can be presented in a visual way. So this is a, um, this should be, there we go, yes. Um, let's, oops, do that again. This is a typical cellular automaton uh, of the kind that I studied a lot. Um, and the idea is there's a line of cells, each color either black or white, and in every step there's a definite rule that determines the color of a given cell from the color of that cell and its immediate left and right neighbors on the step before. So in this particular case, let me, uh, I can bring up, um, hold on, let me just tell that. Um, this is the actual page of the book that introduced cellular automata. And you can see uh, there, that's what happens on the series of steps. And then if we let the thing run for a while uh, with the particular rule that we have here is one that says, make a particular cell black if either it or its neighbors were black on the step before. And so we can summarize that rule by saying, for all these different cases of what the cell and its neighbors was, were like on the step before, this is the color to make the cell on the next step. So the, the, the first sort of observation is that with that kind of, um, uh, with that kind of rule, with a very simple rule, you get very simple behavior. So then I looked at, well, what happens if you change the rule? Well, here we've, we've changed just one bit in the rule, and um, the result is a kind of checkerboard pattern. Here we've changed uh, a few more bits in the rule, and we start off from a, a single black cell, and we end up generating this nested pattern. If we continue it a while longer, we'll find out that it is indeed a self-similar nested pattern, self-similar in the sense that a part of the pattern is similar in structure to the whole pattern. And so the, uh, the, what we might conclude from that is um, uh, that, okay, we've, we've had this, we, we, the, the kind of the intuition would be, we've got a simple rule, we run it, we produce, in this case, not necessarily such simple behavior, but at least behavior that has a certain definite regularity to it. So let's, in, in modern times, we get to do this with Wolfram language, and we could just say, make a picture like the one I just showed, that's um, uh, just a cellular automaton there. That was rule 90, started off from the single black cell and um, have it with, with white cells around it and have it run for, let's say, um, 100 steps. And uh, that's, oops, that's um, result we'll get. Okay, so the thing that I ended up doing uh, well, it took a few steps before I did the most obvious experiment. It's you would think that you would do the simplest and most obvious experiment first, but in order to do that, you have to kind of have some kind of conceptual framework um, in which to uh, uh, um, in which to kind of operate. And I didn't have that at first, so it took an extra couple of years to really nail down what the most obvious possible experiment to do was. But let me show you what. Um, what I ended up doing. So let's, instead of just using this particular rule, 
let's use all possible rules. Uh, let's say we just go 50 steps and we get through that. And we say, use all possible rules um, of this type. Let's say, well, let's just go all the way. The 256 of these possible rules. So let's go ahead and uh, use all of those and see what result we get. Okay, so this is now for every one of those possible rules, each picture corresponds to a different rule, always starting from just one black cell at the beginning. And what we see is there's, there's a whole bunch that just have stripes because the all white state turns into all black and vice versa. Um, sometimes you'll just have the black cell in the middle stays there and nothing, uh, it doesn't grow or anything. Sometimes you'll get these nested patterns and sometimes, just sometimes, you'll get something else happening. And this here is my kind of all-time favorite science discovery. In the numbering of these rules, this is rule 30, and that's what it does. So if we go back to the book, the next, uh, the next page um, introduces uh, rule 30. There it is, showing the, um, the rules that are used to generate this picture, again, starting just with one black cell. And um, then I say here, picture shows what happens when it starts with just a single black cell. What one sees is something quite startling. And as I say here, probably the single most surprising science discovery I've ever made. And I, I go on, on on successive pages uh, and show, it's kind of a, a fun thing that um, on page 29 and page 30 of the book, page 30 of the book has a high resolution picture of, needless to say, rule 30. And when the book was printed, there was, uh, it was very non-trivial to actually get the resolution of printing that was needed to achieve, to kind of have one pixel per cell, um, what, what one, to, to, have, to have the individual pixels, the individual cells here be small. Uh, uh, printing can be very high resolution. And this was making use of that to, uh, in the actual physical book, um, produce this very high resolution picture. But, there's the result. Starting from this one black cell at the top here, you get all of this stuff. This is something, in a sense, very, very surprising, very shocking in some sense, that from such a simple rule, you can get such complicated behavior. I went on and talked about uh, um, another rule with, with similarly, and perhaps even more shocking in some ways, behavior. This is rule 110. It happens to grow only on the left, it's actually shown at the same resolution as that early Rule 30 picture, but Rule 110 has much larger structures that are more visually apparent to a person. Okay, so let's, let's run this a little bit longer. Here's what happens. Starting from the one black cell over here, we get some fairly regular pattern on the left, and we get this kind of elaborate set of localized structures here. Continue it a while longer. This was kind of the, um, you could think of this as telling a story in pictures in the book. Um, you're going for page after page here, just saying, what's going to happen? What, what are these structures going to do? Are they all going to die out? Are they going to start producing some, some big sort of explosion of activity? What's going to happen? Well, we go through multiple pages of the book. In a sense, these were the, these were the fastest pages in the book for a human to write, um, although they took plenty of, of computational effort. I think there were 12 million cells um, pictured in these in these images, which about it's about the same as the number of stones in the Great Pyramid of Egypt, um, but uh, it took a lot less time for a computer today to produce these results. So it turns out after four thousand steps 
eventually you discover that, well, actually, this thing evolves in this particular case with this particular initial condition, it evolves to something that has rather simple behavior. Um, and uh, that's kind of a, a summary of what, of what the thing does over all those steps. So sort of the, uh, this, was, this was the kind of the, um, uh, the remarkable thing that with a simple program from out there in the computational universe of possible programs, even with such a simple program, even though you fed no complexity in at the beginning, even though one started off with just one black cell, even despite that, there was immense complexity in the behavior that could be produced. And in a sense, that was sort of the, the launching experiment that, um, uh, uh, that kind of um, launched what became a new kind of science. So I kind of talk about the, the next section that I have here is the need for a new intuition. Because as I say, the, the pictures plainly show it takes only very simple rules to produce highly complex behavior. Yet at first, as I say, this, this may seem almost impossible to believe for it goes against some of our most basic intuition about the way things normally work. Our everyday experience has led us to expect that an object that looks complicated must have been constructed in a complicated way. And so for example, if we see a complicated mechanical device, we normally assume that the plans from which the device was built must somehow be correspondingly complicated. It's kind of reflecting that um, image of picking up the, um, uh, the, the pocket watch back in the 1800s, um, somewhere on the heath and asking, you know, what was the, how, how complex was the thing that made this? How complex were its plans? And comparing that to, the, to biological organisms and, and thinking and realizing that biological organisms are much more complex. Our normal intuition is if we see that complicated mechanical device, if we see that complicated thing, it must have been created by a complicated set of rules, a complicated set of plans. But as I say, the results in the previous section of the book show that at least sometimes such an assumption can be completely wrong. For the patterns we saw are an effect built according to very simple plans that just tell us to start with a single black cell and then repeatedly to apply a simple cellular automaton rule. Yet what emerges from these plans shows an immense level of complexity. So what is it that makes our normal intuition fail? The most important point seems to be that it's most that our intuition is mostly derived from experience with building things and doing engineering, where it so happens that one avoids encountering systems like the ones in the previous section. For normally we start from whatever behavior we want to get and then try to design a system that will produce it. Yet to do this reliably, we have to restrict ourselves to systems whose behavior we can readily understand and predict. For unless we can foresee how a system will behave, we can't be sure that the system will do what we want. So, but unlike engineering, nature operates under no such constraint. So there's nothing to stop systems like the ones that we just looked at from showing up. And in fact, one of the important conclusions of the book is that such systems are actually very common in nature. But because the, situ the only situations in which we are routinely aware, both of underlying rules and overall behavior are ones in which we are building things or doing engineering, we never normally get any intuition about systems like the ones that we just saw. So is there then any aspect of everyday experience that should give us a hint about the phenomena that occur in these systems? Probably the closest is thinking about features of practical computing. For we know that computers can perform many complex tasks. Yet at the level of basic hardware, a typical computer is capable of executing just a few tens of kinds of simple logical arithmetic and other instructions. 
And to some extent, the fact that by executing large numbers of such uh, um, instructions, one can get all sorts of complex behavior is similar to the phenomenon we've just seen in cellular automata. But there's an important difference. For while the individual machine instructions executed by a computer may be quite simple, the sequence of such instructions defined by a program may be long and complicated. And indeed, much as in other areas of engineering, the typical experience in developing software is that to make a computer do something complicated requires setting up a program that is itself somehow correspondingly complicated. In a system like a cellular automaton, the underlying rules can be thought of as rough analogs of the machine instructions for a computer, while the initial conditions can be thought of as rough analogs of the program. Yet, what we just saw is that in cellular automata, not only can the underlying rules be simple, but the initial conditions can also be simple, consisting, say, of just a single black cell, and still the behavior that's produced can be highly complex. So, while practical computing gives us a part of a, a hint of part of what we saw, the whole phenomenon is something much larger and stronger. In a sense, the most puzzling aspect of it, that it seems to involve getting something for nothing. For the cellular automata we set up are by any measure simple to describe, yet when we run them, we end up with patterns so complex that they seem to defy any simple description at all. One might hope that it would be possible to call on some existing kind of intuition to understand such a fundamental phenomenon. But in fact, there seems to be no branch of everyday experience that provides what's needed. And so we have no choice but to develop a whole new kind of intuition. And the only reasonable way to do this is to expose ourselves to a large number of examples. We've so far seen only a few examples, all in cellular automata. In, in the book, in the next few chapters, we're gonna see many more examples, both in cellular automata and in all sorts of other systems. And by absorbing these examples, one's in the end able to develop an intuition that makes the basic phenomena that I've shown here seem almost obvious and inevitable. So that's, that's kind of the, um, uh, the, the, the thing that I'm emphasizing there is you do this experiment in the computational universe and you discover these things that are really very surprising, you didn't expect were there. Now you have to kind of reset your intuition to encompass what you now know is true. And in a sense, it was that effort to reset one's intuition that was the foundation for the science and new kind of science and the basis for a lot of work that's been done since then, ultimately the basis for things like our physics project and all the things that are emerging from that. All of that came from this one observation that came out of this in the end, best summarized by this one rule, this rule 30 cellular automaton. It's, it's so much my favorite discovery that like on, um, uh, on my uh, business card, I, I have a, a nice rule 30 on the back and a, and a rule 30 embossed on the front. Um, just in case I'm, I'm chatting with someone and it's like, you know, there's this rule 30 thing. And um, uh, it's like, it's very hard to describe because it's like, well, you, you kind of get, um, uh, you run a program and it does this thing that you don't expect it to do. So you kind of have to see it do it. Um, I'm not sure that business cards in the in the AP after pandemic world, maybe business cards aren't going to still be a thing, but uh, um, uh, I've always found them useful. Well, in any case, so the, um, the thing that um, uh, in, in this effort in, in the book, I really talked about two other things in this chapter. One is much more technical detail about what one knows about these particular simple cellular automata. And the other 
more of a kind of conceptual historical question of this seems like such an incredibly obvious discovery. How come this wasn't known a thousand years ago? And I try and talk about that and, and about how that, how that comes to be. But maybe I should show first a little bit of um, more of the technical details. And that kind of allows me to emphasize another feature of the book. So there's the main text of the book. And then there are the notes at the back of the book. So um, the, uh, this is this is my the chapter, but each of these each of these sections, in fact, each page has a whole bunch of notes um, of uh, details about um, uh, um, the um, uh, what was said in the main text. And I have to say that in my own use of of the book in all these intervening years, it's probably the notes more than anything that I've referred to a lot because they just have a, a huge amount of information packed in. So maybe I'll just go through a little bit some of the notes uh, for, for chapter two here. Um, I have a note about implementing cellular automata. Um, at the time, Wolfram Language Mathematica, as we then mostly referred to it, um, didn't have a built-in cellular automaton function. I think I, I viewed that a little bit as it's sort of a, a um, uh, at some level, I, I suppose I avoided it in some, in some uh, fit of, uh, avoid what you know best kind of thing. But there was another thing, which was cellular automata are in a sense, very general kinds of systems. And just as with mathematical functions, we have hundreds of named kinds of mathematical functions, Bessel functions, hypergeometric functions, and so on. One could imagine doing the same kind of thing for cellular automata, all kinds of named types of cellular automata. And I was reticent to introduce kind of this whole zoo of different kind of cellular automaton functions into the system. And then sometime towards the end of, of working on new kind of science, I realized that there's a very nice, elegant way to kind of pack in the most common kinds of cellular automaton rules uh, sort of all together in a single function. And so that's, uh, that's in the end what we, what we did in, um, uh, in the version of, of Wolfram Language that came out right, right after the NKS book 20 years ago. Um, so all the things that I'm saying here in this in the section about implementation, these are things that um, uh, in in modern times there's just the cellular automaton function um, in the language. Um, but this is kind of telling you how that function can work, and it's very very simple and elegant. I mean, it's it's uh, you know even in the sort of the base language, you're just taking uh, a um, the a list of bits that correspond to the rule, and you're indexing into that list of bits by this array that corresponds to the, if for example, you have periodic boundary conditions as we do here, something where you're rotating left and right, the, the array of cells and then uh, uh, um, introducing it. Now, now one thing that um, uh, is a feature of, of cellular automata is that in a sense, those, those functions that say um, the, um, uh, that um, give you, Kind of the let me let me bring one up here. If I say something like um, uh, here, let me show you in modern terms. If I say something like rule plot cellular automaton thirty, for instance, um, this uh, you can view this output here as being a Boolean function of the inputs here. You can just say these are trues and falses, and what Boolean function corresponds to. Uh, that set of outputs, and in fact, you can you can say in in modern times. Uh, let's see, how do I do this? I think I say thirty comma three here. Um, there we go. 
and that is a Boolean function, let's say a PQ and R, um, and that would give us, if I say Boolean convert, um, actually I could say Boolean minimize, um, and uh, this would give us the Boolean function in terms of ands and ors that corresponds to the uh, cellular automaton rule. And if you're going to implement cellular automata on a present day computer, a computer that wasn't sort of designed specifically with cellular automata in mind, a super efficient way to do that implementation is to use kind of the compilation of cellular automata into, into these bitwise operations, partly because bitwise operations can be done on standard computer a whole word at a time. You can do you know, the bit and or the bit XOR of a whole word of bits, 64 bits in modern times, with another whole word of bits, and that all happens in hardware in parallel in the computer. And so that's a way of, of dramatically speeding up the implementation of cellular automata, and I, I talked a little bit about that here. Um, the, uh, and actually, there's some, there are all kinds of tricks you can use about um, uh, how to do this, and, and indeed in the in the Wolfram language implementation of cellular automata, needless to say, things are exceptionally optimized. Well, one of the things that I did in the book was there are basically no formulas in a new kind of science. The only way of communicating precise things, well, there are two ways. One is in pictures, and the other is in Wolfram language code, or as we called it then, Mathematica code. Um, and so one of the things I did uh, oh, this, this is actually the section about bitwise optimization of, of cellular automata and about the tricks that you can pull to do that as well as possible. Um, the, uh, uh, so I talked more about, um, about different ways to implement things and, and about um, the fact that kind of the, the core idea of Wolfram language of making transformations on symbolic expressions has a direct application because to cellular automata, because you can think of, you have these blocks of cells and then you're asking, how should you transform that block of cells? And you can do that using patterns and that's kind of the Wolfram language way to do it. And of course the code that I wrote now in many cases like 30 years ago um, is uh, because of the effort we've put in to maintain compatibility and not make design mistakes in Wolfram language, that code all still runs, which is really cool. I, I should say that this first, this this chapter two of New Kind of Science, I wrote that the, the year I started working on New Kind of Science, 1991. And um, in a sense, it was, uh, uh, I would have been happy if it was kind of like, if that was all I needed to say, I could have finished the book in 1992 and uh, spent the rest of the 90s doing other things. But as it was, this kind of discovery that Rule 30 led to uh, the, the the set of discoveries kind of cascaded for a whole decade. I mean, I had discovered Rule 30 back in, well, 1990, 1982, 1984, um, and uh, then I sort of tried to see its starting in 1991 and see how general that phenomenon was. So uh, this is talking about special purpose hardware for cellular automata, which seems to come up with some regularity. Um, I'm sure in modern times, actually, there are GPU implementations, although GPUs tend to be very much oriented towards uh, uh, floating point operations and cellular automata are very much discrete kinds of things. You probably make even more efficient GPUs um, operating for cellular automata than, than what's done right now. Oh boy, I have uh, all kinds of things hidden in the notes here. This is the audio implementation of, um, uh, of cellular automata. Let's see if we can, um, I, I bet we could still do this. We can just say play. 
Um, and uh, what's this going to do? This is going to make, um, oh, this is a very, this is just 0.2 seconds. I wonder whether this is going to play through all the layers of everything here. Um, that's not a good sign. That's, that's um, oh, I, I say list there. So I didn't, I didn't, that's, that's why I didn't work because I didn't have a, an actual, um, uh, let's see what this says it does. We can probably play the, the yeah, it says, um, Okay, a step in the evolution of a solid automaton can be represented as a sound by treating each key um, like a key on a piano. And so the, this yields a chord such as this. So for example, I'm sure we could just take the center column of, uh, let's just take um, a little piece of, uh, let's do rule 90 here. Let's take a little piece of rule 90. Let's not do too many steps. Let's just do 10 steps here. Okay, there we go. And now let's try uh, doing this. Um, let's see what happens here. I think I want to take this and uh, we can write that code a little bit more nicely, actually, in modern times. But um, uh, let me see, what do I want to do here? I want to say, I wonder if I put that whole list in there. I think that's going to produce a very strange result. But let's take a single, uh, single thing here. Let's see what that does. I just take that and put it in place of that list there. I suspect we'll get it to something. Okay. Not too exciting, but we could probably go through and um, uh, we could go and um, uh, play the whole sequence of those. Um, uh, okay, if I, if, I, if I run for a longer time, let, let's just run, let's just get the hundredth step in rule 30, for example. And that should give us, oops, I need probably need two of those. Um, there we go. And let's, so let's say, let's take the 500th step here. And let's go ahead and say, um, let's go do this on that. Um, let's run this here. And this may produce an absolutely terrible sound, but we'll see what happens here. Um, okay, let's have a listen. Oh, it was all for just 0.2 seconds. I should have extended it. Let's see, do we have the set? Yeah, okay, let's try this. Let's just try it for two seconds, just for fun. Um, and that was line 13. That's one. Oops. This may sound absolutely horrible, so watch out. Yeah, well, in a sense, that sound reveals one of the core features of Rule 30. What it does seems kind of random and seems as random, seems very random as far as our tests of randomness are concerned. And now that's a test based on our ears, so to speak. Um, and uh, okay, well, so let's let's keep going. That was about the audio representation of cellular automata. You, you never know what's hidden in these notes. I, I'm, I'm constantly finding things in these notes that I didn't remember were there. This is about kind of the mathematical representation, like rule 30 is um, can be thought of as P plus Q plus R plus Q times R mod two. So if P, Q, and R are the values, zero or one, of the three cells in the neighborhood, one way to represent rule 30 is just you add up the three values plus Q times R result mod two. Like rule 90, the rule that I showed you was some, um, uh, um, that um, 
has uh, um, uh, nested uh, has a nested structure. That's just p plus r mod two. It's a and that one feature of that is it's a linear additive function mod two. Whereas rule thirty, it's p plus q plus r. Okay, it's almost just a straight linear function, but then it has plus q r. That's its nonlinearity, and that one little tiny nonlinearity is the source of all of that complexity in in the behavior of rule thirty. Well, okay, let's go on here. So this is this is a page about kind of well, what if what if you thought about something like rule thirty like a mathematical function? What if you just said take the configuration of values at a particular step, take them as digits in a number, you know, point, and then it would be in binary one zero one 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 whatever it is. Take that as a binary number and say on the next step, what binary number do you get? It's like turning a cellular automaton into an iterated map, and this is these are the functions. So uh, let's see. These are these are what you get. Sort of that's the function for rule thirty. Where as a function of the value for a finite width rule thirty, that's the new value that you get from that finite width rule thirty. And what you see is this structure itself has a nested pattern. This is like a Cantor set structure. And in fact, you can even view uh, cellular automata as being like maps, continuous maps. Of the Cantor set to itself, and that's kind of revealed by this, in a sense, traditional mathematical representation. In some sense, if if cellular automata dealt with numbers, this is how they would do things with numbers. Uh, okay, so one feature of Rule Rule ninety, the nested pattern, is that it is a cellular automaton where there is a definite mathematical interpretation of what it's doing. What it's doing is it says take the left left element and the right element, add them up mod two, and make that be the, the new element. So that is the direct analog of Pascal's triangle, where you're doing that with just complete integers, one, 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 two, one, one, three, three, one, and so on in Pascal's triangle. That's uh, rule, rule 90 is Pascal's triangle mod two. And so there's all kinds of interesting things to say about Pascal's triangle mod two. Um, for example, if you just want to count how many black cells are there on Pascal's triangle on the nth step of Pascal's triangle mod two. So, for example, if we take, um, uh, let's just take our favorite, uh, okay, that was lots of those other cellular automata, but let's just take um, uh, uh, rule 90. Let's start it from a single black cell. Let's, um, let's run it for 100 steps. And let's, for each one of these, let's, um, uh, let's find the total. So this is the number of black cells um, as a function of, so let, let's say we say list line plot. Um, this will show us that it's cut off, it cuts off at the top there because it went bigger than the default plot range. But this is showing us as a function of, of, of level in that nested pattern, how many black cells are there. So uh, if, if we look here, well, actually we can, we can very rapidly see that this is, that they're always powers of two. So let's go ahead and take, um, uh, log to the base two of, of that, there's the result. And so now we can say, well, what does that look like? And for people like me who've looked at way too many of these kinds of, um, these kinds of things, I look at that picture and I know, I say, I know what that is. That's a picture of the number of ones in the binary decomposition of the number. So what we'll see here is as we go up to, for example, 32, it'll, it'll drop down to just one, the 32th element here, because 32 in base two is just one and a bunch of zeros, the, um, uh, this has value one. 
for 31, which is a bunch of ones, uh, it'll have its maximum value and so on. And so it turns out that one of the sort of mathematical results is that the nth row or the teeth row of Pascal's triangle mod two has a number of, uh, the, the number of ones there is proportional to the number of ones in the binary decomposition of the number T. So that's an example of a result. And there are a whole bunch of other results here that I talk about, about thinking about this in terms of polynomials. You can think about Pascal's triangles like those are the coefficients in one plus X to the power T. In this case, it's because it kind of goes in both directions. It's one over X plus X to the power T. And one can look at the coefficients of that and those correspond to the values in Pascal's triangle. And uh, there, there are different forms of um, different ways to compute things. Um, this is this is a, just another. These are these are all quite interesting. If you try and take these apart, they both tell you how convenient it is to use Wolfram language as a representation of these kind of algorithm fragments of how you compute things, and the fact that if you were to try to write this in sort of traditional kind of uh, math and numbers notation, it will be very awkward. There isn't even really a, a good symbol for the digits in an integer. That's not something, it's not like a function, like, you know, the divisor sigma function or something where, you know, number goes in, integer goes in, integer comes out. These, this, these kinds of cases don't have such a convenient notation. But in Wolfram language, we, we do have a convenient notation. And I kind of made it a principle in writing new kind of science that I would only use Wolfram language code plus pictures plus English to explain what I was talking about. And it worked really well. Um, and I think in a sense, the, the discipline of, of writing things in Wolfram language code was really important in, in getting clarity of what one was talking about. Plus 20, 30 years later, can still run the code and, uh, and can play with it oneself. Okay, that's talking about the uh, nesting and self-similarity in rule 30 um, and uh, that's talking about the fact that um, with different initial conditions, you can get all kinds of wild, um, uh, um, wild kinds of pictures. Um, and I think probably here, let's see, there, there are starting to be um, image source notebooks. And uh, let's see if we can pull that out from there. Um, there's starting to be, uh, there'll be more of these, but this is, um, okay. So that's an example of what happens if you start rule 30 off not from a one in a sea of zeros, but uh, a, um, a one, sorry, one, one, zero in a sea of ones. No, I'm sorry, this is a sea of, oh, I'm sorry, that this is, um, yeah, a single one in a sea of one, one, zero blocks. So it kind of makes that, that kind of uh, pattern. And it's sort of remarkable that people still discover things about rule 90 um, I, did I say rule 30? I meant rule 90 here. Um, rule 30, there's, there's just an amazing amount still to discover. Um, but even rule 90, which is something that sort of seems accessible to traditional mathematics through thinking about binomial coefficients and so on, there's still things to discover. Okay. Oh, this is about um, thinking about more general additive rules. And uh, it's kind of a tricky thing. You can, um, if you just take uh, the sum mod k, for any, for any integer k, you'll get a nested pattern. That's something I, I noticed in, um, uh, bizarrely, nobody seemed to have noticed that before. I noticed that in the, maybe 1981 or so. Um, and uh, when, when the number is a prime, it's a nice clean nested pattern. When the number is composite, it's a bit more complicated. But there's a question of things like, um, 
what is the fractal dimension of um, uh, actually there, there was some precursor literature, but it didn't really emphasize this idea of, of, of nesting and so on. But but you can do things like ask what what is the what is the fractal dimension of the nested pattern, and it turns out it's possible to work that out for any prime k. Again, a formula that's rather easy to write in Wolfram language and will be quite hard to write in um, uh, in sort of traditional mathematical notation. I, I wonder if we can work this out. Let's say, let's take, um, uh, for example, for, um, uh, oh, this is in arbitrary dimensions, d. So I think I want to say, is d the dimensionality? Let's, we have to read the, the documentation here. What is D? Is D the um, um, number of cells, blah, blah, blah. What is D? Let's see. For non-prime, oh my gosh, it has to say what D is. Um, it's given by the number of borrows that I see. The This, um, Oh no! I see. This is a completely different thing. Oh yeah, right. Sorry, I was I was I was misreading what was going on here. So we, this this is this is telling us the fractal dimension um, just in terms of k. Uh, so this is this is a more general kind of thing here. Um, okay, onward. Oh, history of Pascal's triangle mod k. So I, I talk about Pascal's triangle, uh, probably known in China in the twelve hundreds. Maybe even, well, it, the sort of drawings of it from that time discussed by Pascal, 1654, um, in particular in connection with probability theory, because it's kind of like you can have all these different uh, sort of what we would now call binomial trees of possibilities of, you know, you flip a coin, it goes, it, it's um, uh, heads, tails, and you can have these different sequences, and that can be represented by this Pascal's triangle. Um, so this idea of using the digits of numbers to find binomial coefficients mod k uh, has been, well, I found various independent inventions of them, uh, Lucas, Glacier, um, and uh, um, uh, were, were two people who studied this, um, uh, this phenomenon whereby you can compute the um, uh, binomial coefficients mod k um, uh, which are the binomial coefficients being the things that appear in Pascal's triangle, you can compute that using digit sequences of numbers. Oh, this is this is kind of, well, if you're going to do it for binomials, what about other things? What about Stirling numbers and so on? And, and you tend to find sort of these, these simple combinatorial uh, functions end up giving you, in these cases, mostly nested patterns, although somewhat distorted ones here. Um, oh yeah, this is this is kind of fun. If you if you ask about things like bit and and bit XOR, you can kind of ask this question: um, What does the bit bit XOR function look like? If you just say bit XOR of X and Y, what are the values of bit XOR of X and Y? Um, does this yet have click to copy? Oh, this might have. Um, okay, this has a a cloud notebook. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Nice. Um, all right. So let's let's say I pick out. Um, I'm not sure this is the best way to do it anymore. We can now do, we now have image, image. Um, we don't need to do it this way. Things have become more modern, but anyway, I could do that. Um, and this is now uh, bit XOR. So what this is saying is every everything here, the height of a particular column here is the bit XOR of the values of its X and Y coordinates. And that's the kind of pattern it makes. And um, in fact, this, this phenomenon 
these kinds of patterns um, are quite quite fun. Um, and uh, it was a it was a well known display hack for the PDP one computer in 1962. Was the so called munching squares hack, where you are progressively bit XORing squares, and you end up going through this whole sequence of different um, uh, different uh, different images. And it's kind of a thing where had one tried not just uh, using the bit XOR operation, but using a combination of operations, maybe bit XOR combined with bit OR, one would have made something just like rule 30. But in fact, people just used bit OR and bit XOR and so on. Well, let's see. So um, I talk about what one can tell about rule 30. So for example, one of the questions is, if you look at the center column of rule 30, um, what, um, uh, what uh, what kind of thing can you say about it? And back in those days, I had computed, originally I did it, um, oops, let me, um, uh, um, um, originally I had done it actually on the connection machine parallel computer. I had computed a large number of, of, uh, of bits of rule 30, actually, in a sense, keeping memory, because you have to store, in order to compute the nth bit, you have to store uh, at least um, n bits at, at uh, time n over two um, to compute the nth bit in the center column. And so I had, I think when I did NKS, I had computed, okay, a million cells. I think we've now computed more than that. And, um, but still a great deal is unknown about, um, uh, um, about rule 30. In fact, so much so that uh, just a couple of years ago, I put up some prizes for figuring out things about rule 30. And um, these are things where, and the, the problem one, does the center column always remain non-periodic or does it eventually uh, kind of like, a, like the digits in a rational number eventually just become periodic? Does, this, does the color of each cell on average occur equally often in the center column? Are there as many ones as zeros? And then, the final one, the kind of most difficult one, does computing the nth cell of the center column require at least about order n computational effort? And that's really the question of computational irreducibility. Is there a way to kind of jump ahead and compute the nth value in rule 30 without computing the things before it? But uh, in, in, the, in the notes of the NKS book, um, I talk about what one does know about um, uh, about this pattern. So for example, in the rule 30 pattern, if you look at that rule 30 pattern, there is on the left-hand side, there's periodicity in this pattern. And one could say, well, how do the periods increase as you go to a certain depth? They also, uh, on, in principle, the periods can increase exponentially with depth. And uh, on the right-hand side, they do increase more or less exponentially with depth, uh, with exponent, just like two to the D, and where D is depth. And here on the left-hand side, they increase much more slowly. And people have in the intervening years studied that um, in more detail. So for example, they only reach uh, period 32 at depth 87,867 and so on. Um, so uh, anyway, that was, that was, I was kind of summarizing what was known about rule 30. Sadly, we know very little else in the intervening 20 years, we've, we've learned very little else, despite a fair amount of effort spent on kind of the analysis of Rule 30, we don't yet know bigger facts about it. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, the center column, the, um, 
there's a there's a kind of a line between the regularity of the left-hand side and the irregularity of the right-hand side. And um, that's something you can kind of plot that line of irregularity. And it makes a pretty good random walk, a random walk with a slight bias of about 0.252 cells uh, per step. And I, I, I should tell a story here. When I was first working on this in, oh, 83, 84 kind of time frame, uh, Dick Feynman, Richard Feynman, a uh, well-known physicist, was a, was a friend of mine, and he sort of looked at Rule 30 and he said, I just don't believe it's really as complicated as you say it is. You know, and he actually spent um, uh, a vacation out in Hawaii, I think, where he'd had a, a, a computer shipped out there for the purpose of playing with that and trying to figure out, you know, could he decode Rule 30? And uh, he he came back from that and said, oh, okay, okay, okay. I think you might actually have something there. Um, you know, I, I can't decode it. But one of the things that um, uh, he noticed was this point that that I'd also noticed that there was this kind of line of regularity, and he had this argument for why the um, the line of regularity should be um, uh, should be just um, exactly uh, 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 0.25, and um, just to uh, Maybe I can pull up here if I can do that. Let me see if I can find it in a moment here. Um, I might even be able to find, um, let me see here. I should have been better prepared for this, but let's take a look. Um, let me see whether I can find something here. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this would be here. Um, oh, look at that. Uh, so this was in, this is in my online scrapbook. Um, and that is uh, some notes. Um, does that get bigger? Oh dear. Um, maybe that gets bigger. Oh, there we go. There are some notes from um, that's Dick Feynman's handwriting of uh, looking at Rule Thirty and uh, trying to see whether one can um, uh, trying to compute the velocity. This is so quintessentially Feynman-esque that um, you know when in doubt start calculating. For me, that will be when in doubt, you know, run Wolfram language on a computer. For Feynman, that was when in doubt, start calculating by hand. I think maybe there are some other things here. Let's see. Oh, this is this is more on rule 30, um, trying to work out sort of the, the probabilities. And I think there, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's fun. That's I told you he was a he was a serious hand calculator. And that I I guess is some probability estimate for um uh um, uh, for, for, for rule 30. Um, so it's very close to two thirds there. Well, yes, the thing that I found is that if you measure that velocity that, of that uh, random walk, it's like 0.252, but it's not quite 0.25. It's definitely not 0.25. So in any case, just a, just a fun uh, little piece of, uh, uh, of anecdotal history there. Well, so, um, going back to the uh, the book, uh, yeah, I also uh, talk about um, um, uh, rule one ten, and actually one of the big questions in rule one ten is those those structures that um, you see in rule one ten. Uh, what are they, and um, uh, what kinds of things can occur? I talk about that a whole bunch later on in the book. Let me not talk about that here. Um, so and I have some other notes. There are all kinds of, of funky things hidden in these notes. Um, the uh, here's one 
reactions of scientists. Many scientists find the complexity of the pictures so surprising that at first they assume it can't be real. They assume that while pictures may look complicated, if they were only subjected to the appropriate kind of analysis, they would sort of crush to simplicity. And Dick Feynman was precisely an example of somebody who assumed that, as I was actually at the beginning. Um, the, uh, um, it's, it's interesting to notice that, you know, it, you might think that sort of using just your eyes to tell you something is somehow unscientific. And that, no, 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 we have to turn everything into numbers, and that's the only way we can be scientific. But actually, one of the things that sort of a meta lesson of a new kind of science is that one's eyes are useful. One's eyes have the sort of highest data rate that gets into our brains right now for, for kind of things we can tell what's going on. And that it's visualization and being able to sort of see things and, and uh, come to conclusions just with one's eyes is really important. One can then sort of back that up with various kinds of computational and mathematical and numerical and whatever methods, although sometimes they won't get that far and one's eyes still have it, so to speak. But I think I had another note here about intuition from practical computing. This is not a note I remember at all. So I guess this is, this is commenting on what one could learn from just experience with computers. Maybe in 20 years later, maybe there's even more one can learn. First, that general purpose computers can be built different programs for doing all sorts of things can be set up. Any given program can be implemented in many ways. Uh, programs can behave in complicated and seemingly random ways, particularly when they're not working properly. Debugging a program can be difficult. It's often difficult to foresee what a program can do by reading its code. The lower the level of representation of the code for a program, the more difficult it tends to be to understand. Some computational problems are easy to state but hard to solve. Programs that simulate natural systems are among the most computationally expensive. It's possible to create large programs, at least in pieces. It's almost always possible to optimize a program more, but the optimized version may be more difficult to understand. Shorter programs are sometimes more efficient, but optimizations often require many cases to be treated separately, making the programs longer. If programs are patched too much, they typically stop working at all. So uh, some interesting pieces of intuition there, which uh, some of which we kind of see reflected both in new kind of science and more recently in physics project and so on. But some I think are still uh, are still sort of interesting. I mean, like shorter programs are sometimes more efficient, but um, uh, optimizations often require um, uh, many cases to be treated separately. So in other words, you can. Uh, it's often the case that there will be special code paths that can have that are special cases that sort of aren't the general case that one can where one can find these sort of pockets of reducibility from that particular code path. But when you add all those pockets of reducibility, the actual intrinsic program one has may get considerably longer. So it's a sort of an interesting trade-off. I mean, the, the limiting version of that trade-off is just have your program just cache all the cases of what you're trying to compute. Let's see, um, things about design. Okay, well, so the next big section of, um, uh, of this chapter was uh, something that was kind of something I really, really wondered about for a lot. And so I really wanted to actually make a section that talked about this. And the question was, uh, as, as I titled the section, why these discoveries were not made before? You know, why weren't these things discovered before? And uh, maybe I can just read a little bit of, of what I had to say about that. 
So I said, <clears throat> the main result of this chapter, the programs based on simple rules can produce behavior of great complexity, seems so fundamental that one might assume it must have been discovered long ago, but it was not. And it's useful to understand some of the reasons why it was not. In the history of science, it's fairly common that new technologies are ultimately what make new areas of basic science develop. And thus, for example, telescope technology was what led to modern astronomy, microscope technology to modern biology. And now in much the same way, it is computer technology that's led to the new kind of science that I describe in this book. So indeed, this chapter and several of those that follow can in a sense be viewed as an account of some of the very simplest experiments that can be done using computers. But why is it that such simple experiments weren't done before? One reason is just that they were not in the mainstream of any existing field of science or mathematics. But a more important reason is that standard intuition and traditional science gave no reason to think that their results would be interesting. And indeed, it been, if it had been known that they were worthwhile, many of the experiments could actually have been done even long before computers existed. For while it may be somewhat tedious, it's certainly possible to work out the behavior of something like a cellular automaton by hand. And in fact, to do so requires absolutely no sophisticated ideas from mathematics or elsewhere. All it takes is an understanding of how to apply simple rules repeatedly. Well, I, I actually showed a picture um, of uh, uh, sort of to, to highlight that point. I showed a picture I had collected. Um, let me share this again. Uh, of um, examples of ornamental art that were kind of proto pre cellular automata. Um, these are each one of these has a has a story, so to speak. Um, this is first century BC. Um, and uh, actually, oh, there are even earlier ones up here. Yeah, right. That's the 22,000 BC. You're seeing this kind of uh, uh, a bone bracelet thing with all kinds of elaborate patterns on it. 3,500 BC um, in, uh, um, I guess this is in the city of Ur. Um, the, uh, this is an early mosaic pattern. And I think uh, at least um, mythologically, uh, Gilgamesh himself was supposed to have been responsible for the um, uh, um, uh, for, for the creation of those patterns. Um, actually, we, we see. Um, let me just um, uh, pull something up here. Uh, hold on one second. Um, let's see. I'll go back to these pictures, and I can tell you a little bit about some of these pictures. Um, so. Uh, that one there is a mammoth ivory bracelet, apparently, from a place that's now in Ukraine. Um, and uh, uh, it's from Stone Age. Um, and uh, the um, uh, one thing I noted was that actually the, the, um, uh, the, the lines of these patterns, although it's clearly, if you, if you sort of dig this up and you say, was that made by naturally by a mammoth or was that made artificially by a human, you would immediately say it's definitely made by a human. But it turns out that the angle of those lines follows uh, some angles that exist in mammoth dentin uh, naturally. So uh, this is, um, as I mentioned, this is um, uh, in Uruk, I guess, in Mesopotamia, now in Iraq. Um, apparently this very temple is mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, it's uh, that that object is now in a museum in Berlin. Um, okay, this is a, this is Greek from 1200 BC. 
Um, it's apparently a, a doodle on the back of an accounting tablet that was found in Pylos, Greece. Um, and uh, I kind of described the, um, I showed uh, kind of the, the, how one expects that that pattern was actually made successively, um, how, how the kind of successive steps were made. But it's sort of interesting that that, that pattern occurs, that very same pattern occurs in multiple places around the world. Um, that particular labyrinth pattern appears in many places. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's said to have been the, the plan of the labyrinth housing the Minotaur in Knossos, Crete. And it's said that it was designed by Daedalus himself. It's also said that it was the logo of the city of Troy, or maybe it was the plan of some of its walls. But uh, you know, th this shows up all over the place. Uh, coins from Crete, graffiti in Pompeii, and much later in the floor of the cathedral in Chartres. Uh, there are also um, uh, carvings in Peru, um, etc. So it's uh, you know for three thousand years, it's been the most common design used for for mazes. Well, okay, then we get to other kinds of patterns. These are loons. Loons were very popular in, in a, as a geometrical pattern. They, they, they seem to have fallen out of, uh, out of popularity a bit, but this is a Phoenician example of loons where what you basically do is you use those, those, those points there uh, and you put a, a compass that will draw a circular arc, circle here and you just look at the intersection of all those circles and it makes that kind of hexagonal pattern of, of loons. Um, the... Uh, 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 Euclid discussed those patterns, and uh, in fact, Leonardo da Vinci had an unpublished book um, about, um, I think it was called Geometrical Play, that is full of those things. Um, well, then you see patterns like this, and it's always so hard to tell. You know, you see a pattern like this, and what on earth is it? You know, how did somebody make that? Um, it turns out that pattern, again, is a collection of circles from different center points, and it's kind of the overlap of those circles. But if you just see this, it's clearly a pattern made sort of on purpose in some sense. But what was the mechanism of making it? Hard to say. And it's something where, you know, one kind of wonders by the time you're making a pattern that elaborate in the first century BC, you know, why not make a cellular automaton pattern? Well, uh, this is, um, that's a, a Roman mosaic. Um, this is a, um, uh, um, um, a mosque in uh, uh, Cordova in Spain from 785 AD. Um, then um, uh, you see, and that, that's, that's you know, on the wall of a mosque. Sometimes you see in, in finer art that's been preserved, that's, uh, that's a two-inch square um, uh, piece of decoration um, in the Book of Kells, in the Cairo page, I guess Cairo for, for Christ, um, in the uh, which was a um, um, a uh, um, a book that was created over the course of many years, starting in about 800 AD. Um, uh, and um, there are one thing that's notable here is that is the existence of these nested structures that um, uh, somebody very elaborately drew on this page. Well, you go further and you're starting to see um, uh, things, um, uh, again, this strange Arab Norman style seems to be from two very different geographical areas, but um, uh, that was sort of the, the course of history in those days. 
um, these these kinds of sort of partially nested patterns seen in architecture. Um, that's uh, that's the Lincoln Cathedral in England from 1225 AD. Um, this is uh, this was sort of a, a favorite thing that I found. This was um, uh, the first example I could find of nested patterns, truly nested patterns that that really go many levels. Um, is in this this work of um, uh, by the uh, Cosmati group. Um, this is was a group of mosaic layers. Um, uh, originally, th these particular mosaics were um, uh, from a cathedral in Anagni in Italy. Um, it was uh, kind of an adventure getting those pictures at the time when we got them in the in the 1990s. Although I went to see this thing uh, a few years later. And um, it was easier to see at the time, but um, uh, okay. So these were made around 1226 by a chap called Cosmos of the Cosmati family, um, and uh, this um, um, there's a uh, art historians have traced the Cosmati work as it's called. It's pretty famous in the history of mosaic and so on, and it can be found in all sorts of places. You know, in there's stuff in Westminster Abbey, there's stuff in Venice, and so on. But it was uh, uh, in the art history books. There's there's a bunch of tracing of the um, of the kind of uh, genealogy of the Cosmati, four generations of them, and there's a lot of discussion of when there's representational art um, in in these kind of mosaics and the methods of actually making the colors in the mosaic and so on. But when it comes to these nested patterns, the old art history books. Uh, very erudite in their form, are completely silent. I mean, people just didn't understand this idea of nesting, and so they didn't comment on it. Um, okay, I have to show you this one. This was um, this was a pattern where it's like, look, if you can make a thing like this, maybe it is a cellular automaton. Maybe it is some number theoretical function. Maybe it's some uh, something like this. This was uh, from around 1300 AD, um, and it's in uh, a place that's now in Iran. Um, it's... Uh, um, and the question is, what is this? And it took me, I, I tried to like use what cryptanalysis skills I have to figure out what on earth could this be? The answer in the end is that it's calligraphy. It's an example of so-called square Kufic style. And it's a, a verse from the Quran um, and which sort of is, starts off like that. And then it can be kind of squared up like this. And then you can kind of wrap it um, like this. And then if you pack it in, you can you make this kind of pattern here, and this thing unrolls. I mean, talk about um, uh, sort of right to left being a difficult form of uh, uh, for computers, at least sometimes um, for for dealing with um, characters. But here you've not got that. You've got packed in in a square, so to speak. It's a um, but but that's some, so that that turns out to be calligraphy, and it turns out not to be something that was sort of made according to rules. Um, of the type that um, uh, might be like cellular automaton rules. Now, uh, so so this was a. I, I was very curious what kind of rules had people used, and and why had they not come up with something just like cellular automaton rules? And so I I was curious about about sort of what kind of things based on rules have been made in human history, and there are lots of different examples. So in architecture, for instance. There are definite rules, you know, when you make a ziggurat, when you make the Great Pyramid, uh, you know, 2500 BC, um, it, um, uh, um, the, um, oh, I, I say in the, in the notes in the NKS book that the Great Pyramid uh, contains 2 million large stones, 
and that's the, about the number um, uh, in that in the original Rule Thirty picture, in um, on page thirty of the NKS book, there are about a million cells shown there. So, uh, in any case, uh, Hindu temples from a thousand uh, BC, kind of uh, constructed with multiple scales in kind of a nested pattern, um, and um, you know, in Roman architecture. Uh, you know, even the sort of Palladian villa kind of thing. There's there's a whole bunch of, of sort of nested patterns that get made. I, I mentioned in the NKS book, the Castel del Monte from the 1200s, um, somewhat later. Um, there are, I think, things called star forts, which are kind of constructed in these sort of nested patterns of fortifications. Um, many Persian gardens, like the ones from the Taj Mahal, have fairly re regular nested structures. So in any case, there's a sort of nested structures uh, in architecture fairly common, but until modern times, until people actually started using cellular automata to make architectural forms, no rule 30 that I could find. Another place where sort of definite rules um, uh, have been, um, uh, have been um, set up, textile making, weaving, in fact, it's become one of the rather popular ways to uh, artistic ways to render cellular automata is um, in, in weaving patterns. You can program a computer controlled knitting machine to just actually run the cellular automaton kind of right at the um, at the at, at the sort of knitting uh, point, so to speak. You know, you could have a jacquard loom where where instead of having punch cards to program it, you could actually just have the cellular automaton program um, being the thing that was determining the knitting pattern. Another one that I mentioned in the NKS book um, is uh, kind of a kind of an odd one is rope. That was that was one that I I realized is um, is another example of um, uh, um, uh, of nesting. There's an example. When you make a piece of rope, you're typically making it out of multiple strands, and um, those strands are arranged in this kind of nested pattern. Um, did I? Oops, I didn't share that. Sorry. There you go. There's the nested rope. Well, okay. Other lots of other kinds of things. I kind of went on this big tour of different um, kinds of. Um, uh, kinds of rules, knots, string figures, paper folding. Uh, also talked about mathematics, but that's a bigger discussion. Uh, grammar, uh, the idea that you can make, uh, set up words in a language according to definite rules. That seems to have been a thing um, uh, from a grammar that was given by a person called Panini for Sanskrit in 500 BC. Um, that kind of idea of making sort of definite generative rules for grammar didn't really reappear seriously until 1956. I actually recently looked back at the at what Panini had actually written. It's so hard to understand a lot of this stuff that was written in a very different context a long time ago. It's kind of almost aphorisms about, you know, after the verb, there must be a this. After that, there must be a that. And you can kind of, you know, if you say, well, how would I write that in computational terms? You wind up with precisely a generative grammar. But if you take it on its face value, it's kind of almost more like here are templates and examples of how the grammatical structure should work. I mentioned in NKS poetry, um, where 200 BC Indian work on uh, enumerating possible forms of, of prosody led to potentially both Pascal's triangle and, and more certainly Fibonacci numbers. 
Um, and then, you know, rhymes involving iterated length six permutations, sestina, iterated repetitive sequences, terza rima, uh, used by people like Dante and so on. Dante was a pretty science and math oriented person. I talk about music and different forms of regularity used in music, but again, no cellular automata. I talked about um, uh, another wild one, military drill. Um, uh, you know, fortifications by, made up by soldiers probably existed in Babylonian and Assyrian times, but it was pretty well codified, you know, the tortoise configuration for the Roman legion or something like this. And uh, Machiavelli, actually, in, in the 1520s, described some, um, uh, some, some elaborate rules, but they were set up to lead to rather simple behavior, like a column of soldiers arranged in lines and so on. Another example, rules, games. Things like uh, Game of Go from 500 BC, maybe as early as 2000 BC. Um, Go is, a, is indeed a case where there are simple rules that potentially lead to complex patterns of play, but it's again, not quite like a cellular automaton. It's not quite something where you say, here it is, now these are the rules, now just go, so to speak, just, just use those rules automatically. Uh, similarly with puzzles, uh, they're usually based on constraints rather than based on saying, generate this using these rules. They're rather, you have these constraints, what can fit, so to speak. Oh, I just go on talking about all sorts of different, um, uh, different things um, here. But um, cryptography is another case, again, um, not really the same kind of, you know, the schemes that involved repetition. It turns out rule 30 itself can be used as a good crypto system. You're basically generating randomness to kind of grind up the uh, the message that you have in um, uh, when you generate that center column and you use as a key, you use the initial condition. It's a good stream cipher, but nothing like it seems to have been actually used in cryptography, well, until modern times. Um, uh, I talked about mazes, uh, all these kinds of doodles, uh, people make, I mentioned Leonardo da Vinci's geometrical play has all sorts of elaborate patterns, particularly things based on loons. Um, but anyway, so lots and lots of different uh, kinds of um, places where uh, versions of um, things based on rules appeared, but no, um, uh, no cellular automata. And I, you know, I've kind of thought one day somebody's going to send me mail and they're gonna have a picture and it's gonna be a Babylonian tablet and it's gonna have something like rule 30 on it. And that will be really cool if it happens. But so far, nothing like that seems to have been found and nothing like that, uh, we don't think that anything like that seems to exist. Um, the, uh, uh, and I say in the NKS book, actually, I mentioned the thing about Babylonian artifact uh, might be unearthed, but um, uh, I say, I, I don't think that's gonna happen because if pictures like these cellular automaton pictures had been seen in ancient times, probably science would have progressed in a different way than the way it actually did. And so I, um, I talk um, in, in the NKS book, I talk about in this chapter, you know, even early in antiquity, attempts were presumably made to see whether simple abstract rules could reproduce the behavior of natural systems. But so far as one can tell, the only types of rules that were tried were ones associated with standard geometry and arithmetic. And using these kinds of rules, only rather simple behavior could be obtained, adequate to explain some of the regularities observed in astronomy, but unable to capture much of what we see elsewhere in nature. And so perhaps because of this, 
It typically came to be assumed that a great many aspects of the natural world are simply beyond human understanding. Finally, with the successes based on calculus in the late 1600s, that belief began to be overthrown because with calculus, it was finally, there was finally real success in taking what amounted to abstract rules created by human thought and using them to reproduce all sorts of phenomena in the natural world. But the particular rules that were found to work were fairly sophisticated ones based on particular kinds of mathematical equations. And from seeing the sophistication of these rules, there began to develop an implicit belief that in almost no important cases would simpler rules be useful in reproducing the behavior of natural systems. So during the 1700s and 1800s, there was an ever-increasing success in using rules based on mathematical equations to analyze physical phenomena. And after the spectacular um, results in physics in the early 1900s with mathematical equations, there emerged an almost universal belief that absolutely every aspect of the natural world will in the end be explained by using such equations. Needless to say, there were many phenomena that did not readily yield to this approach, but it was generally assumed that if only the necessary calculations could be done, then an explanation in terms of mathematical equations would eventually be found. Beginning in the 1940s, the development of electronic computers greatly broadened the range of calculations that could be done, but disappointingly enough, most of the actual calculations that were tried yielded no fundamental new insights. And as a result, many people came to believe, and in some cases still believe today, I, I think that's becoming less true 20 years later, that computers could never make a real contribution to issues of basic science. I think that's something that I'd like to think even uh, the efforts of, of NKS have helped to change that over the past 20 years. But I say there that the crucial point that was missed is that computers are not just limited to working out consequences of mathematical equations. And indeed what we've seen in, in this chapter of the book is that there are fundamental discoveries that can be made if one just studies directly the behavior of even some of the very simplest computer programs. In retrospect, it's perhaps ironic that the idea of using simple programs as models for natural systems did not surface in the early days of computing, for systems like cellular automata would have been immensely easier to handle on early computers than mathematical equations were. But the issue was that computer time was an expensive commodity, and so it was not thought worth taking the risk of trying anything but well-established mathematical models. By the end of the 1970s, though, the situation had changed, and large amounts of computer time were becoming readily available. And this is basically what allowed me in 1981 to begin my experiments on cellular automata. So, you know, there's nothing in principle that makes one have to use a computer to study cellular automata, but as a practical matter, it's difficult to imagine that anyone, at least in modern times, I think back to the book of Kells and so on, would have the patience to generate many pictures of cellular automata by hand. Because I, I mentioned, you know, it would take roughly an hour to generate one of the low resolution pictures of, uh, of rule 30, but even the somewhat higher resolution picture of, of rule 30, not the highest resolution that I show, would take a few weeks to make that picture. Um, I have to say, you know, if this, I'm sure it took a lot longer than that to make that illumination of the Book of Kells. So with a, if, if there's a, a will to do it, there would have been a way to do it back a thousand years earlier. Well, the, um, I, I say that even with early mainframe computers, data for these pictures could have been generated in a few seconds or a few minutes. But the point is, one would be very unlikely to discover the kinds of fundamental phenomena discussed here just by looking at one or two pictures. And indeed, in my own case, it took uh, carrying out quite large-scale computer experiments on a considerable number of different cellular automata to kind of understand, absorb, believe in the things that I was seeing. 
if one already has a clear idea about the basic features of a particular phenomenon, then one can often get more details by doing fairly specific experiments. But in my experience, the only way to find phenomena that one does not already know exist is to do very systematic and general experiments, and then to look at the results with as few preconceptions as possible. And uh, while it, it takes only uh, rather basic computer technology to make single pictures of cellular automata, it requires considerably more to do large-scale systematic experiments. And indeed, many of my discoveries about cellular automata have come, came and have come as a direct consequence of using progressively better computer technology. And the same can be said about the kinds of discoveries that have led to things like our physics project now. So uh, I give some examples in the NKS book about um, um, uh, using high resolution displays and when that became possible. And I, I first really understood the randomness of rule 30 when I could generate it on a, an early laser printer high resolution display and so on. So like I say in the book, undoubtedly, one of the main reasons that the discoveries I describe in this chapter were not made before the 1980s is just that computer technology did not exist, did not yet exist powerful enough to do the kinds of exploratory experiments that were needed. But beyond the practicalities of carrying out such experiments, it was also necessary to have the idea that the experiments might be worth doing in the first place. And here again, computer technology played a crucial role, for it was from practical experience in using computers that I, for example, developed much of the necessary intuition. I mean, as uh, you know, a simple example, we might have imagined that systems like cellular automata being made up of discrete cells would never be able to reproduce realistic natural shapes. But knowing about computer displays, it's clear that's not the case. For a computer display like a cellular automaton consists of a regular array of discrete cells or pixels. Yet practical experience, experience shows that such displays can produce quite realistic images, even with fairly small numbers of pixels. And uh, as a more significant example, I might have imagined that the simple structure of cellular automaton programs would make it straightforward to foresee their behavior. But from experience in practical computing, one knows that it's usually very difficult to foresee what even a simple program will do. Indeed, that's exactly why bugs in programs are so common. Because if one could just look at a program and immediately know what it would do, then it would be an easy matter to check that the program doesn't contain any bugs. So notions like the difficulty of finding bugs have no obvious connection to traditional ideas in science. And perhaps as a result of this, even after computers have been in use for several decades, essentially none of this type of intuition from practical computing had found its way into basic science. In 1981, it so happened that I had for some years been deeply involved in both practical computing and basic science, and therefore happened to be in an almost unique position to apply ideas derived from practical computing to basic science. Yet even despite this, my discoveries about cellular automata still involved a substantial element of luck. Because uh, as some, uh, as I talked about elsewhere in the book, my, my very first experiments on cellular automata showed only very simple behavior. And it was only uh, because it was technically easy to do further experiments that I persisted and ended up finding things like rule 30. And actually, even after I'd first seen signs of complexity in cellular automata, it was several more years before I realized the sort of full range of examples and realized just how easily complexity could be generated in systems like cellular automata. So, but, um, you know, I, I say that part of the reason is that that involved sort of doing experiments with progressively more sophisticated computer technology. But the more important reason is that it required developing new intuition. And at almost every stage, intuition for traditional science took me exactly in the wrong direction. 
but I found that intuition from practical computing did better. And even though it was sometimes misleading, it was in the end fairly important in putting me on the right track. Well, it's, um, uh, so I talk about um, um, now that one knows the fact that simple rules can lead to complicated behavior, one can go back and see quite a number of times in the past when they came at least close to being discovered. Actually, two-dimensional versions of cellular automata were already considered in the 1950s as possible idealized models for biological systems. But until I started looking at these things, actual investigations of cellular automata mostly consisted in constructions of complicated sets of rules that could be shown to lead to fairly specific kinds of behavior. And uh, this, this sort of question of whether complex behavior could occur in cellular automata was occasionally raised, but with the intuition from engineering, it was generally assumed that to get substantial complexity, one would have to have very complicated underlying rules. And so the idea of studying cellular automata with simple rules didn't surface. And so these experiments didn't end up getting done. Well, there were other areas where systems effectively based on simple rules were studied. And in fact, complex behavior was sometimes seen, but without a framework to understand its significance, the behavior tended to be either ignored entirely or treated as some kind of curiosity of no particular fundamental significance. Even in the early history of traditional mathematics, there were signs of this sort of basic phenomenon of complexity. Um, it was known for well over 2000 years about the distribution of prime numbers. It's, it, there's an easy procedure for generating primes, yet once you've generated them, the primes, the, the actual positions of the primes seem in many respects random. But almost without exception, the mathematical work that was done on primes concentrated not on this kind of randomness, but instead on proving the presence of various regularities and average case properties of this distribution of primes. So another early sign of a phenomenon of complexity could be seen in the digit sequence of a number like pi. You know, it, it's uh, by the 1700s, people knew more than 100 digits of pi, and they seemed quite random. Uh, but this fact was basically treated as a curiosity, and the idea just doesn't seem to have arisen um, that there could be a more general phenomenon whereby simple rules like the ones for computing pi could produce complex results. So uh, in the early 1900s, things like nested and fractal behavior were sometimes generated, and sometimes more complex behavior was seen in kind of uh, systems based on mathematical rules. But the, uh, the very complexity of this behavior was usually shown taken to show that, that this behavior couldn't be relevant for real mathematical work and could only be of kind of recreational interest. The, when electronic computers first started getting used in the 1940s, there were more opportunities for this phenomenon of complexity to be seen. And if one looks back, significant complexity probably did occur in many scientific calculations, but those calculations were almost always based on traditional mathematical models and since previous analyses of these models had not revealed complexity, it tended to be assumed that any complexity in the computer calculations was just a spurious consequence of the approximations used in them, particularly sort of approximating uh, perfect continuum real numbers by discrete uh, things that could be, could be stored in a computer. I mentioned iterated maps from the 1950s, um, mention uh, um, cryptography, um, one of the tricky things there is that um, uh, actually systems not unlike cellular automata were studied in the late 1950s for generating random sequences to be used in cryptography. And uh, almost all the results, I say, 
from 20 years ago, almost all the results that were obtained are still military secrets. But I do not believe that any phenomena like the ones described in this chapter were discovered. I think it is still true that those things are secret. Um, in any case, the, the, um, within mainstream science, the sort of standard intuition that had been developed made it difficult for anyone to imagine that it would be worth studying uh, the very simple kinds of programs that, that I ended up studying. Um, in the 1960s, early computer enthusiasts tried running various simple programs and discovered that they could make nested patterns, for example. Um, I talk about game of life and it, as a cellular automaton and sort of making structures there, uh, which ended up being done sort of for recreational purposes, but not really for scientific purposes. It's, um, uh, yeah, I think that the, um, the thing that uh, I ended this chapter by saying is that, um, um, you know, whatever the reasons, the fact remains that despite many hints, the basic phenomenon of simple programs, simple rules generating complex behavior was not something that had been seen before. Um, the, uh, um, and so I, I comment, it's, um, it's not uncommon in the history of science that once a general new phenomenon has been identified, one can see that there was already evidence of it much earlier. But the point is that without the framework that comes from knowing the general phenomenon, it's almost inevitable that such evidence will have been ignored. It's also one of the ironies of progress in science that results which at one time were so unexpected that they were missed despite many hints eventually come to seem almost obvious. And having lived with the results of this chapter then for nearly two decades, now for four decades, it's, it's now difficult for me, to me to imagine that things could possibly work in any other way. But uh, the history that I've outlined in this section, this is something I've certainly thought about a lot, like the history of many other scientific discoveries, provides a sobering reminder of just how easy it is to miss what will later seem obvious. Well, one of the things that I also did in this section, um, I had uh, um, quite a lot of discussion um, of, uh, uh, let's see, I talked about, um, talked some about um, a variety of issues, let's see. Uh, and I'm just going to talk a bit about these notes and then then open this up to some questions and then we should wrap up for today. Uh, I talked a bit about um, uh, things like even recognizing, uh, you know, what is that thing that um, uh, that you have, uh, is that thing that you are showing in a piece of sort of ornamental art? Is it merely ornamental? Does it mean something? Was it generated according to rules? Did it just get produced randomly and so on? Um, I talk, let me talk a little bit about, um, yeah, let me, well, let, let's talk about a few uh, close approaches that I mentioned. I mentioned primes, uh, Fibonacci sequences, Leonardo da Vinci. I mentioned, well, uh, Euler, 1700s, made continued fraction approximations to numbers and noted that. Um, uh, there was regularity in these continued fraction approximations for some things like E, for example, but the, the continued fraction approximation to pi, which is quite irregular, he just didn't say anything about that. Um, same type of thing with, with um, uh, um, uh, with, with the digits of pi. Um, in the 1800s, an interesting case, complicated behavior is found in the three-body problem. 
the gravitational attractions of Earth, Moon, Sun. Um, but it's assumed that with better mathematical techniques, this complexity that's seen and this difficulty of figuring out what's going on will eventually be resolved. A fun one is John Venn, inventor of Venn diagrams. There's a nice little book in which um, uh, he shows actually the first sort of plot probably of a random walk. And the way he gets the, the random steps in the random walk is from the digits of pi. But he makes no comment about this. It's just that's a convenient way to get random digits. Why they're random or what the largest significance of that is, he is silent on that. Um, various studies of um, rewriting systems that um, are nested ultimately, more nested patterns, um, uh, uh, combinators, very early um, uh, thing that I did a lot of work on a couple of years ago now uh, for their 100th anniversary, um, very, uh, very sort of minimal examples of computation but again, uh, which in fact, as I, as I showed recently, and, and people had seen smaller examples of before, can produce immensely complicated behavior, even with a very simple sort of initial setup. Um, but uh, that wasn't something that Moses Schoenfinkel uh, looked at, nor did the people who followed him studying combinators really look at. Uh, Emil Post, I happened to study his work again, because it was its 100th anniversary recently, um, uh, with tag systems, he noted that it was very complicated. And he basically was like, he realized that if he could solve the problem of tag, he could solve every problem in mathematics. And But then he tried to solve the problem of tag and he didn't succeed. He almost discovered Gödel's theorem as a result, but didn't quite. But again, he didn't internalize kind of what this sort of complexity that he had discovered by, by essentially doing experiments on this game of tag, what that complexity, he didn't make a bigger implication of that complexity. Had he done so, he kind of would have discovered Gödel's theorem, sort of might have discovered computational irreducibility and so on. Uh, the Ising model kind of structurally a bit like a cellular automaton, but mostly thought about probabilistically rather than according to definite rules of evolution. Um, talk about uh, Turing machines and so on. The 3n plus one problem, a kind of mathematical problem where there's unpredictability. But again, the big focus is proving a simple result about it, not, oh, let's understand the meaning of the unpredictability. Let's instead try and prove that the thing always terminates in a certain way. Pseudorandom number generators. Uh, for example, I don't know, von Neumann's middle square method, where you square numbers and take the middle digits and so on. They were always viewed as hacks. Von Neumann always would say things like, you know, anybody using uh, machine-generated random numbers, deterministically generated random numbers, is operating in a state of sin, so to speak, um, because they're not sort of truly random, whatever that might mean. Now that we have better theories of physics, we can discuss it in a deeper way. But um, uh, this idea of, you know, you grind up numbers and you make randomness was something that was kind of just viewed as a hack, not viewed as something that was um, of fundamental significance. Uh, cybernetics, when it came on the scene, uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, people built electronic devices. They found sort of complex behavior in like simple neural nets and so on. But they just said, it's a nuisance. We really want this neural net to learn, you know, light from dark or something like this. And that noise in quotes is just a nuisance. Um, Alan Turing might have discovered some of these things when he studied biological systems and late in his life in 1952, but instead, he kind of, I think, made the assumption that, oh, we're studying biology, something physics-like, we better go back to the methods of physics, namely partial differential equations. Uh, John von Neumann, 
he came so close and missed it so badly. Uh, he was studying sort of biological organisms, trying to find sort of a simple idealization of biological systems, but he kind of had the assumption that because biological systems are so complicated, whatever it is that makes them be able to do things like self-reproduction, it must be correspondingly complicated. And he never looked at a simple cellular automaton. I, I, I uh, von Neumann died before I was born, but, but I've certainly talked to many people who knew him. Uh, one was Marvin Minsky, for example, and Marvin uh, told me, but I think it may be one of these back projections of history that uh, you know he'd asked von Neumann about you know why not use simpler rules, and that von Neumann had just sort of seemed confused by that question. Um, but uh, uh, Fermi uh, studied on computers, um, nonlinear springs, and discovered a lot of interesting mathematics and solitons and so on. But again. The sort of he was actually interested in how thermodynamic behavior sort of randomness gets generated in a system like that. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. And um, uh, uh, simulations of hard sphere gases, uh, my friend Solomon Golom uh, actually came really close to studying Rule 30 like things. Um, uh, in um, when he studied nonlinear feedback shift registers, which he did. Uh, as studying uh, sort of things for radar and for sort of a mixture of radar, satellite communications, error correcting codes, and maybe a dash of cryptography. Um, that, was a, that was a really close approach, I think. I think I showed in the book some of what he did. He made a, a rule that had he sort of made pictures of it, it would have looked like this. But he was mostly interested in the overall period of um, uh, of the of if you made it a a, a, a circular register um, that um, uh, as well feedback shift registers are always in a sense bounded length circular registers um, and he was interested in how long until it repeats rather than how complicated is what it does before it repeats so to speak um, well we keep going here I mean lots of different examples and uh, so close but yet uh, not quite there. I mean, I, I should perhaps mention um, in uh, um, uh, in there's the question of sort of the history of cellular automata themselves. Um, I just mentioned that maybe this is my last point here. Um, cellular automata are a very easy, obvious idea. When did they actually get thought about, and and so on? It's um, uh, in the 1950s, basically, they were invented multiple times. And uh, um, there were precursors even to that. So, for example, operations on digits had been used since antiquity in doing, in doing arithmetic. Finite difference approximations to differential equations emerged in the early 1900s. And by the 1930s, people, they were fairly well known and people were doing them by hand. Famously, in World War II, there were a number of things that were done that way for computing fluid dynamics and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, things like Turing machines have been invented. Um, but uh, the, the, the sort of the thing that actually gave cellular automata their name um, was uh, John von Neumann trying to make an abstract model for self-reproduction in biology. So around 1947, um, so remember, von Neumann was trained as a chemical engineer. So... Uh, although he was primarily a mathematician, um, he certainly had a background in that. And von Neumann kind of imagined what would it take to make 
a chemical engineering thing that was like biology. So he was started to think about sort of factories based on 3D models governed by partial differential equations, kind of the, the, the you know, us as factories of, of, uh, of chemical uh, uh, species and so on. So then he started thinking about robotics and um, uh, then he started thinking about sort of toy construction sets. Could you make kind of a robotic thing that would sort of uh, operate the um, uh, it kind of reminds me of the Emerald Cloud Lab guys who are, have this giant Wolfram language based stack of operating um, actual physical, uh, biological and chemical experiments and so on. They've now finally built in real life what von Neumann imagined in the late 1940s might be the way that sort of uh, is sort of an analogy of what life um, uh, does in, in, in real biology and so on. But um, uh, then he kind of concluded that um, he could use, you know, a Meccano set, some other Lego-like set. Lego didn't exist, I think, by then, but Meccano certainly did. Um, and, uh, you know, could he, uh, then he realized that maybe you could just use 2D layouts because electronic circuits managed to basically be in 2D with a few wires that cross and so on. Um, and uh, uh, then Stan Ulam, 1951. So Stan Ulam had told me that he'd sort of independently uh, invented um, cellular automata. I don't know if this was really true. Um, I, I think this was the thing which came out of conversations that he had with, with John von Neumann and uh, sort of triangulating from other things that Stan Ulam said. I, you know, I think it's very hard to remember. I'm sure it came up in various conversations and he mentioned to von Neumann that, um, uh, you know, why don't you simplify your model and just have a discrete array? And, um, you know, Stan Ulam had studied infinite matrices. And so that may have been a, a, a stimulus for that. Um, so the original von Neumann cellular automaton was a thing that's much more like a circuit, you know, a computer specification, 29 possible colors for each cell, a whole book of possible rules and so on. To, to, you know, to basically emulate the operation of, a, of an electronic computer and various mechanical devices. And kind of the idea was, just as computers might be universal for computation, von Neumann wanted to make a universal constructor that could kind of construct somehow anything. And uh, eventually Art Burks, who I, who I knew, um, was uh, filled in this kind of 200,000 cell configuration in this 29 state, incredibly complicated cellular automaton that was kind of engineering its way to making a copy of itself. But um, so, I mean, I think that basically von Neumann, uh, the original sort of use of cellular automata in, and, and Art Burks was the person who, who coined the name cellular automaton. Um, the, uh, the original use was for this very engineering oriented kind of, uh, almost, um, you know, uh, circuit design kind of approach to things. Um, anyway, from von Neumann's work, mm, a certain amount emerged, not that much. In the 1960s, there was sort of uh, uh, all sorts of discussion, rather whimsical discussion of building actual self-reproducing automata, often because of what was going on at the time in the form of spacecraft, you know, self-replicating lunar factories and things like that were discussed. And um, the second was sort of an attempt to capture more of the essence of self-reproduction by mathematical studies of detailed properties of cellular automata. And um, uh, let's see, there were various properties of sort of, this was kind of the early days of theoretical computer science. Cellular automata were quite popular. 
uh, Turing machines eventually took over as the thing to sort of discuss algorithmic computer science. But there were there were in the 1960s, particularly there were sort of discussions of of properties of cellular automata. Um, but they were they were mostly in explicit constructions done with mathematics. Nobody simulated the things, or even even you know, in the papers don't have. Um, at best, they have a typewritten, you know, one or two lines of um, uh, of cellular automaton um, uh, uh, behavior. So, by the end of the fifties, people realized cellular automata could be viewed as parallel computers, and um, there were all sorts of sort of formal things proved about them as parallel computers. Um, the uh, um, by the mid seventies, it was kind of dead. Um, my friend Ed Fredkin is fond of telling the story that when he came to MIT, uh, people, and he wanted to work on things related to cellular automata, people told him, it's a dead field, nothing will ever come out of that. Um, he persisted, nevertheless. Uh, some work remained on cellular automata uh, after the mid-70s, particularly in Russia and in Japan. Um, and I, I know there's been quite a tradition that's continued to today in Japan along these lines. It doesn't help things that... Um, uh, there were all sorts of different names used for cellular automata because they've been invented in different places by different people. Tessellation automata, cellular spaces, iterative automata, homogeneous structures, universal spaces, all used for different, um, uh, different, different, uh, differently. Anyway, lots of different things. Um, uh, I talk in the NKS book. I've, there's a there's a there's a lot more detail here about about all the different things that happened um, and. Uh, uh, sort of perhaps some 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 interesting anecdotes. Um, uh, well, I mentioned um, uh, infinite sequences, zeros and ones, considered in, in various kinds of symbolic dynamics and mathematics. I could tell a number of stories about this. Um, well, I, I mentioned um, in the NKS book, I said, in the 1950s and early 1960s, there was work in this area of kind of shift commuting block maps, as they were called. Um, at least in the US, by a number of distinguished pure mathematicians. But since it was in large part for application to cryptography, much of it was kept secret. And what was published was mostly abstract theorems about features too global to reveal any of the kind of complexity that I discuss. It's an interesting, um, uh, interesting kind of um, seeing little uh, pieces of the iceberg of, of, of work that was done um, uh, in, in particular in the 1950s in connection with cryptography. Um, I think in the end, uh, cryptography sort of went in a different direction. But um, uh, in those days, a lot of uh, distinguished mathematicians were consultants for the, for the US government uh, working on these kinds of things. And they discovered a bunch of interesting things. And they published the sort of more abstract end of it um, in the open literature. Well, in any case, um, it's, uh, I think, at the end of the um, uh, the end of this section in the NKS book, I um, I plot the um, uh, the kind of the the plot down at the bottom there of the um, number of papers that mention cellular automata um, as a function of time, and uh, after my efforts back in '82, you can see that things things start to take off again, so to speak, and uh, I think this trend has continued to today. Um, so that that's um, that's the story of cellular automata there. Um, so okay, well that was um, uh, that was kind of going over a little bit of what's in chapter two. I have to say it's a little bit uh, uh, um, scary for me that that um, uh, 
chapter two is one of the shorter chapters in the NKS book, and it's taken me a while to go over some of what's in there, but I encourage people to actually look at um, uh, look at the book online or in a physical form. I see there are a number of, of uh, questions and comments here. I can I can try and uh, address these if they're quick here. Um, okay, I see asks um, says that um, in the in the notes I I worked I, I said I worked hard to analyze the behavior using ideas from statistical mechanics, dynamical system theory, discrete mathematics. The question is, has more been figured out since the book came out? A bit, not much. A little bit. A few things about different initial conditions have been figured out, um, but the big problems remain uh, undone, and that's that's exactly why I put up these Rule Thirty prizes uh, uh, to try and make forward progress on that. Let's see. Uh, RBS are elementary cellular automata related to Galois pseudorandom number generators. Not quite sure what those are, um, but I think if they're based on Galois fields, well. Uh, probably, uh, I would guess that those are like additive cellular automata, like rule rule ninety. Um, uh, are nested patterns reversible? Well, no, no, they're not reversible in the sense that you know, given an output, you can deduce the the inputs again. That there are some cellular automata that do have that property, but uh, and there's some nested ones that have that property, but the ones I've just been talking about are not of that kind. Um, question, uh, what happened to the Rule 30 random number generator? Yeah, well, we used it for many, many, many years in Wolfram language as the default for random integer. We retired it only because with Rule 30, to keep it kind of securely random, you can only sample it at a certain rate. You can only kind of sample the bits uh, because if you take two columns next to each other, they are no longer completely random. Um, and if you take, you can take multiple columns but there are correlations between those columns. But we found we did a big search for other rules that would have better randomness properties. And by sampling, because in the hardware of the computer, it's perfectly possible to sample not just nearest neighbors, but slightly further away neighbors. Um, we have a rule that samples slightly further away neighbors and generates uh, randomness a little bit more efficiently than rule 30 does. And so we switched to using that a few years ago. But rule 30, no, it's never been cracked. Um, and in fact, these Rule 30 prizes are partly prizes for showing that certain aspects of it can be cracked or that they cannot be. And I think, by the way, people wonder a lot whether, whether one can make an NP-complete cryptographic system, one where it is formally NP-complete. And Rule 30, I think, has the, the best chance of any sort of practical uh, 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 cryptographic scheme of being actually proved to be MP-complete. One can prove that, in general, cellular automaton inversion is MP-complete. Whether it's MP-complete for the specific case of Rule 30 is a more complicated issue. Let's see. William asks, is it a good rule of thumb that if it can't be decoded by Dick Feynman, then it's irreducible? Well, based on what I think from the principle of computational equivalence, it doesn't even take a Dick Feynman to get to the point, if it isn't fairly obviously reducible, it will typically be irreducible, although there will be exceptions to that. And those exceptions correspond to sort of new forms of perception that we might have that might be sort of mathematically inspired forms of perception. Uh, well, there's a question here from RBS. I, I mentioned this point that I said that in the in the um, notes to the NKS book, the programs that simulate natural systems are among the most computationally expensive. 
and they're asking, have I changed my point of view? I have not thought about that. Um, that is a good question. I mean, I think that the thing that's come out of the physics project is that certain kinds of systems that are these kind of multi-computational systems, the slice of those systems that we seem to care the most about does not seem to have the same property of, of such irreducibility. It's a funny thing because you get to the reducible slice by going through an irreducible step, a sequence of steps. It's as if there is this sort of, uh, you know, what emerges is reducible, but kind of what's underneath to get there, at least from the underlying rules, is irreducible. But yes, I mean, I, I suppose that the, the fact that the physics project is capable of sort of plugging into these shorthand laws of physics is a sign uh, that, um, that there isn't um, that kind of uh, sort of uh, pure irreducibility all the way down. Well, I should probably wrap up there. And um, thank you all very much for, for joining me. And um, uh, next week, we will tackle chapter three, which is a very meaty chapter, um, but I will probably cover it in a little bit less detail, um, quite a lot less detail probably, than I covered chapter two here, um, just as a preview. Chapter three is called The World of Simple Programs. And uh, it's kind of about the exploration that I did to ask the question of, given these phenomena that we had seen in cellular automata, how general were those phenomena? Did they apply to other kinds of programs? That's what chapter three was about. That's what I'll talk about next week. So thanks very much and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can read more about Stephen's journeys at writings.stephenwolfram.com. For more information on Stephen's other publications, live streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.